all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We're talking today with General Larry O. Spencer. He's got an interesting perspective on coming up through the military as a African-American and the opportunities presented and, and the challenges faced. But really, it's kind of a different story, too, because he was a part of the Air Force. And usually we're talking to war fighters, but I think he's the first time we've had the chance to talk to somebody who is on the finance and business end of this. You know, you can't buy those big... Uh, uh, airframes and, and systems without having uh, control on the business end. And he came up through that channel. Very interesting uh, from a guy who uh, was in Washington, D.C., in the ghettos, if you will, but made his way to the Pentagon as a result of a lot of hard work and a lot of help from a lot of folks. So I think you're going to find this interesting as we uh, are in the middle of Black History Month to understand and appreciate what our African-American citizens have gone through to serve in the United States military. So onward with the interview with uh, General Spencer. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, uh, I'm not sure we've had a four-star on before, but General Larry O. Spencer, retired from the United States Air Force. Uh, General, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you so much. I'm I'm ecstatic to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation, um, and so thank you so much. Well, we're glad to have you on, General, and and uh, uh, we're going to try to pull out of you some of your life lessons that you've written into a recent book called Dark Horse. General Larry O. Spencer and his journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon, and we'll explain the title a little bit as we go along. But uh, as I was telling the general earlier before we started recording, that first part, before he starts putting on the stars, is a really interesting life uh, journey and kind of unusual. Um, so as a young man growing up in uh, Washington, D.C., you were, you were in a uh, 
you know, kind of a tough inner city neighborhood. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, those uh, those early years, General. Uh, sure. And it, it, thinking back on it, it is sort of interesting to think about. Uh, so I was born and raised uh, in Washington, D.C. and southeast on a street. Uh, it was actually 46th place is the name of the street officially. Uh, but unofficially, it was called a horseshoe because it's, it's actually shaped like a horseshoe. Um, and again, in, in an inner city environment, uh, growing up in the uh, uh, 60s, essentially, uh, experiencing the uh, civil rights movement, uh, got the opportunity to attend uh, the Martin Luther King March on Washington, uh, all of the anti-Vietnam protests, uh, watching that on TV every night uh, with, with body counts, uh, and, and all of the opposition in the country at the time to Vietnam. Uh, my father, uh, was an army soldier, uh, spent 20 years, uh, in the army, uh, Purple Heart from, uh, uh, from the Korean War. My mother, uh, hadn't graduated high school, um, and maybe we can probably get into that a little later. Uh, but, but really poor school system. Uh, I was not a very good student, uh, and, and, and as a result of that, uh, found my way into you know, situations I probably should not have been been involved with. Uh, but you know, the neighborhood itself, uh, I think, for the times, uh, was was fairly typical. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, because uh, I was in an inner city and and not really exposed to uh, the potential and possibilities that I could have as an adult. Uh, you know, my self-esteem and self-worth uh, was not very high. Uh, and frankly, as a, as a young kid uh, and growing into a teenager, uh, I really didn't have much of a, uh, you know, much of a plan or much hope uh, for my future. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, back then, particularly growing up in, a, uh, I was going to say predominantly African-American uh, neighborhood, but it was 100%. Uh, African-American, um, uh, you know, at the time, the expectation was that uh, I would be good at sports, and I was. Uh, unfortunately, that same expectation was not there for for ac- academic success, um, so I was, I was not a very good student. But, uh, but putting all that together, um, it, it was an interesting uh, childhood. I learned a lot uh, from my environment, and, you know, in hindsight, it, it made me who I am today, but... Uh, certainly not, you know, when folks, you kind of teed it up well, when folks ask me, you know, how did you become a four-star general? Well, well first of all, I think that's the wrong question. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there is a formula. Uh, but when they found out about, you know, my story, my life, my, particularly my beginning, they, they kind of, you know, get the, get the picture that it's not really where you start or how you start. Or what conditions you were born into? It's, it's what you do with the, those conditions, and what you and, and how you prepare yourself for opportunities that are out there that really count. Well, I'm going to back you up a little bit and probe a little harder because I think um, it really is instructive for folks to know. Your, your parents grew up in the rural South under Jim Crow. Correct. Your your dad lost his left hand in the Korean War, and wore a prosthetic that today, you know, the nobody would the the difference between prosthetics today and back then is so dramatic. It, you know, I think the 
I hate to use this phrase, but it was Captain Hook back then. Right. That couldn't have been easy for a young boy to deal with, not only you know looking at him yourself, but like how the neighborhood and how others um, uh, viewed your father's injuries. So, you know, you, those are rough things as a young man to deal with, I would think. Yes, uh, and in my case, uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, uh, folks back then that served in the military, the Korean War, World War II, uh, to some extent Vietnam, but, you know, that generation of, of, uh, of folks did not talk about, the, and still don't, uh, talk about their war experience. Um, there was no acronym called PTSD, so they, they were told to, you know, when, when they had the trauma of war and the injuries of war, they were told to, to suck it up. And so, if you can imagine, I grew up as a kid in a neighborhood my, you're right. My my father wore a hook. I mean, uh, Captain Hook is probably a good description. The Captain Hook from the uh, Peter Pan play, um, and he never told us. Uh, I, you know, I, I was the oldest of six kids. He never told us what happened. Um, you know, we we sort of knew that he lost his left hand in the Korean War, but the circumstances he never talked about, and that was really tough for me because. You know, kids can be cruel, as you know, and uh, I got teased a lot, you know, about my father, you know, and, and being Captain Hook, all the Captain Hook jokes. Um, and, and that was really tough for me, one, because it, it, it sounded so cruel and unfair, but two, I could not go back to them and explain what happened. And uh, and so that was, that was, you know, looking back on it, it was really tough on, on my brothers and sisters and I, um, you know, just to take it a step further. I didn't find out about my father's injury until I was a colonel in the Air Force, if, if, you, if you can imagine, and uh, uh, happened to be in his home. Uh, he was going to attend my pinning on ceremony, and he handed me a book. Um, and, and the book was Firefight at Yichon. It was, a, it was a book written by his then company commander about the Korean War. Uh, and, you know, I, I took the book home. I didn't think much about it because he didn't tell me anything about the book. He just handed it to me. Uh, a couple of weeks later, because I had it sitting on my nightstand, I opened it and started reading it, and I was just fascinated uh, about the graphic nature of the book and the Korean War. And and, and to put this in context, you know, the uh, military was, wasn't integrated until uh, just before the Korean War. And so even though technically... President Truman uh, integrated the military. Uh, it wasn't really integrated, uh, you know, for pra- on practical terms. So, right, right. My dad was in the army during this period, uh, and so the he was in a, you know, an unofficial segregated unit, um, and so his company commander was also uh, black. Uh, so, to make a long story short, uh, he uh, was was considered one of the sharper uh, soldiers in the unit. He and another uh, gentleman, uh, Sergeant Monroe, were tasked to move a bulldozer from the town they were in to the South Korean town of Yichon. Uh, and because the flatbed truck that they would typically transport the bulldozer on was inoperable, my dad and this Sergeant Monroe were tasked to what the term they used was walk because it, it moved so slow, uh, but to essentially drive this this bulldozer uh, the, the total of about 100 miles. And so, as you can imagine, uh, that was a, you know, a night and day, 24-hour uh, task. 
uh, because the rest of the company moved on. So during that trip, my my dad fell off the uh, the, the uh, bulldozer while it was still moving, fell onto the tracks, uh, and instinctively turned his body off the tracks to get on the ground. Unfortunately, his left hand got caught in the gears uh, of the bulldozer and got mauled. Uh, and, and think about the timing here, because today we have combat search and rescue that can you know can transport a wounded person from the battlefield to a hospital in a matter of hours. Uh, that was not the case back then. And so he literally laid out on the ground uh, in, in South Korea, cold, no one around to help other than the, his, the soldier that was with him on the bulldozer. Uh, he fell into a coma. Uh, he developed gangrene in his hand, uh, was in really bad shape. And so they, when they finally reached him, they transported him to Japan, uh, and he was he, he had his left hand removed, and it, as you pointed out, uh, considered pretty primitive surgery today, uh, but he literally had his hand amputated, and uh, in the prosthetic, it was it was a simple hook. Uh, rather than now, they've got computers and, and hands that look real and, and can pretty much do anything a hand can do. Of course, they, they just didn't have that surgical procedure back then. And so he had his hand amputated. He was sent then back to Walter Reed for recovery. Uh, and, of course, they wanted to discharge him, but, you know, he didn't want to go back to the farm in southern Virginia. Uh, so he requested to stay in the Army, uh, and uh, they said he could if he could still pass his, his marksmanship test, which he did. And he stayed in the Army for 20 years uh, and, and served most of that 20 years at the same place at the uh, – over at the Walter Reed Annex, it was called Forest Glen. It was a laboratory that worked on prosthetics. So even though I'm technically a, an Army brat, I, I'm really not because we never moved. I, I, I spent my entire Army brat time as a kid in one house in D.C., and we never moved. So it well, was quite traumatic for me. So it was uh, it was interesting. And, and he and again, this is one of those lessons we're trying to pass along, folks. He never st- spoke to you about it. You read about this story in a book. And, you know, you and your brothers and sisters, this was like, you know, not part of what was explained. It's so important to tell our family kind of what we've been through. And in some regards, it helps um, explain some of the post-traumatic stress problems that a family has. But that, your dad's story is a whole nother uh, uh, interview process. But I want to get you, you reference this, and I think this is important, too, to get across you referenced the farm. Yeah. And as I re- read your story, and again, I'm more fascinated in the story before you start pinning on stars, uh, but we'll get there. Um, talk a little bit about how the time on the grandparents' farm be- was really formative for you. It, it was it was 100% formative for me for because I having, you know, Growing up in Southeast D.C., I, I didn't consider it fortunate at the time because, you know, my grandfather, uh, who lived in southern, southwestern Virginia, not far from Appomattox, had a tobacco farm. So as you can imagine, a kid growing up in Southeast D.C., you know, the thought of being on a farm working tobacco fields, you know, in the middle of summer was not exactly, you know, something I wanted to do. Uh, but in hindsight, uh, it ended up being uh, very formative for me and very instructive and taught me lessons, uh, that, that I, that I lean on today. Uh, again, it was in the South. Uh, it, 
you know, they were out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, my father, my grandfather was a, 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 a deacon in the church. Uh, and so he, you know, he and I and my cousin who was there uh, essentially worked tobacco uh, every day uh, other than Sunday when we went to church for most of the day. Um, but a particular story that was uh, really instructive for me was uh, one summer I was, I was on his farm. Uh, and, and again, those of you who haven't experienced a farm, uh, you know, it's, it's, I want to paint this picture for you because we're literally there on 60, 65 acres, really on our own. No one else is around. We very seldom leave the farm. Everything that we subsist with pretty much is, 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 is on the farm. So we didn't go for visits. We didn't, you know, go to the movies. We didn't go to the store. We didn't really go anywhere other than church on Sunday. Uh, and so the, uh, and our typical routine was to get up every morning. I had chores. I would feed the hogs. I would, you know, uh, do certain things. And then we would head out to one of the many tobacco fields. And this one particular summer, my cousin, who generally would be there with me, was with his mother in Philadelphia. So he would join us about two weeks later. So it was just my grandfather and I. He was pretty much an introvert. I was as well. So we didn't talk a lot. But he decided, you know, this particular summer that he would mentor me, I guess, for lack of a better term. And, and he taught me these nuggets of wisdom that uh, at least nuggets of wisdom in his mind, uh, not necessarily in mine, mine, my mind. As an example, he, he, he taught me the difference between a mule and a donkey. Why I needed to know that uh, is beyond me, but he thought I did. Uh, he also told me that uh, a bl even a blind rooster finds a kernel of corn every once in a while. And frankly, I'm still scratching my head over that one as well. Uh, but so this one particular day, we jump on the tractor, which was our routine. I mean, our typical routine was we would jump on the tractor and head out to a field. This particular day, we didn't do that. He went and got the horse. He had one horse and one cow. And he got the horse, hooked up a platform to it, put a plow on the platform. We went out to one of the fields, uh, and he hooked the plow up to this horse and started plowing these perfect rows up and down because they were going to plant vegetables later. And, and as a, you know, 11, 12-year-old kid, I was fascinated by this. I've never seen anybody operate a plow before. Um, and so I was sitting on the ground kind of playing in the dirt, My and, you know, keeping keep in mind my grandfather and I, have probably talked now more than we had since I was born. Um, and so he took a potty break, went off into the woods, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I can impress my grandfather if I get behind this horse and continue his work so that when he comes back, you know, he won't have as much to do. <laughs> so I strapped myself in behind this horse, had never done this before. Uh, again, if you, those of you who haven't seen a plow, it's a big, heavy piece of equipment. I barely got it upright, uh, and I knew the command to make the horse go forward. And so the, I gave the command. The horse starts to walk, and so I'm kind of walking, trotting behind the horse. The problem is I didn't know how to operate the plow. Uh, that's problem number one. Problem number two, I didn't know the command to make the horse stop. I uh, didn't think about that until after I got into it. Um, so now the horse is going di directly across my grandfather's perfectly plowed roads. Um, and, and I'm, one, scared, uh, don't know what to do, don't know how to make the horse stop. And let me pause just for a second, because I want to be clear, I don't advocate this, 
and and I'm and I'm not saying that folks should do this. Times have changed, but back then, uh, in the '60s, on a farm by yourself with no one else around, you could whip your kids. And 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 in fact, not only could you whip your kids, but if the neighbors found out about it, they would encourage it. Uh, so so I'm saying he and, and he had never done that to me before. But that's going through my mind as I'm messing up his morning's work. And so the horse is moving. I'm trying, trotting to keep up. My grandfather emerges from the woods and is in shock. He yells at me and he says, Larry, what are you doing? And I turn around. If you can picture this in your mind, I'm sort of half turned looking at him, looking back at him, but trying to continue to move sideways because the horse didn't stop. And as I stumbled and almost fell, instinctively, I yelled out, whoa, you know, just trying to steady myself. And, of course, the horse stopped because that was the command. That was the command. Exactly. I didn't know that. (laughs) And so so I was glad the horse stopped. But as I turned around, now my grandfather storming toward me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, here we go. By the way, the the tool of choice uh, on the farm to discipline your kids was called a switch. Uh, which essentially is a, a, a tree branch. And we're out there in the middle of nowhere with hundreds of tree branches in, in, in arm's reach. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm going to get it now. And so he storms up to me, and the first thing he says was, are you okay, which I wasn't expecting. And I said, you know, yes, uh, and I was about to apologize and say, hey, I, I'm sorry, I, I was just trying to help. And he stopped me, and he said something to me that was very – may be considered inarticulate, um, but but was very impactful. He said to me, uh, it's okay to try and fail, but it's not okay not to try. Wow. And what he, wow, what, right? what he meant by that yeah. was, hey, I'm, I'm your grandfather. I'm proud that you tried. And by the way, you know, in your life, you, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunities out there. You can't be afraid to try, and you can't be afraid when you fail because, by the way, you are going to fail. But the but what I learned from that lesson was no matter how hard it seems and, and, and how scared you are, go out there and try anyway. No, uh, and that, no. that lesson has led me my entire life. It, it still leads me today. No, I think these are the sorts of things that people, like, again, kind of forget. It's common wisdom. Once you say it out loud, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But sometimes right. in the moment you don't live it. And, but I want to back up because I want to draw some dots. We, we didn't get a chance. To, we won't have a chance to talk much about your mom. But, you know, between your dad, your mom, your grandpa, there, there were folks along the way uh, that made the sorts of impressions, foundation building, morals, virtues that really got you along. Even though, in your own words, you have you had low self esteem, you struggled in school, and you were you were way heavier than you should have been um, right. because of that low self esteem. But there were always there was. It seems like in uh, general in your life story, there's always been somebody there helping, promoting, uh, suggesting uh, different uh, approaches. And, and maybe you want to comment about having those kind of, that kind of support or mentors, if you will. 100%. In fact, uh, you know, when I talk to groups today, one of the things I tell them, if, if they don't have multiple mentors, they need to leave this room and go start develop, developing them because 
mentors and, and folks who took an interest in me um, were, were, were so valuable to my both professional and personal life. Uh, I, I could, we could have an entire show just talking about individual mentors that impacted my life, but I'll just give you an example. Um, uh, as you know, I, I enlisted initially, and, and, and by the way, I, uh, the fact that I spent about seven and a half years enlisted uh, was so valuable to my professional uh, development that I, I can't even, uh, I, I can't even uh, articulate how, how valuable that was to me and how I, how much I appreciated my enlisted time. But uh, my, one of my initial enlisted assignments was to, in Taiwan. Uh, and, again, keep in mind, this was, this was in the uh, early 70s where, you know, long hair was in vogue. Uh, and if you could see me now, you know, and I could, you know, and, and I, am, I am, let's just say I am, I am hair challenged today. So you, so I would have to ask you to use your imagination. But back in those days, I had an afro like you wouldn't believe. Now, now was that authorized? Uh, you know, technically no. But all my friends had long hair, and we disguised it uh, as best we could, and and we pushed the envelope on the hair length. Let's put it that way, significantly. Uh, and so uh, I went to Taiwan, and I made a bet with my friends that and several of us did that we could go the whole remote tour the whole year without a haircut. Uh, and all of us did. We went the entire year and we didn't get a haircut. Uh, and so I then came back from Taiwan uh, in the Air Force to a command called Strategic Air Command, which no longer exists, but it was considered back then the toughest command in the Air Force. They, they had the, you know, the strategic uh, B-52s and ICBMs, and it was just a very strict uh, command, very uh, strict dress and appearance standards. And so, but I, now I show up on this base though with all this hair. Uh, and so again, I would disguise it as best I could to stay in, within regulation during the day. My wife actually braided my hair during the weekend. Uh, again, to jump to the, to near the end here was, uh, one morning, Monday morning, I was not able to, uh, term we use was pack my hair down. And so I was sitting in an office, uh, with my hair all, all, you know, over all out in everywhere, and 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 in hindsight, it was embarrassing. And and as a, I was 19 years old, I, I should have even known better at 19, but I didn't. So, but fortunately for me, uh, I was in early. A chief master sergeant, uh, who in the Air Force is the top enlisted grade, walked by the office, sort of looked in and saw me, but didn't say anything. And I kind of wiped my forehead as though, man, I, I escaped the bullet there. Uh, and a few seconds later, you know, he literally did the Michael Jackson moonwalk and, and came back and looked in the door and said, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Uh, he, he said, airman, get up from your chair and follow me. So I got up. Uh, I followed him outside. Uh, by the way, maybe you know the answer to this. I don't know. Uh, every senior NCO I have ever run into, they all had pickup trucks. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but they all had pickup trucks. So he put me in his pickup truck. He took me to the barber shop. He walked, we walked in. He paid the barber. He sat down in his chair. He said, give him a, give him a military haircut. And so I sat there watching all my hair fall on the floor, uh, as he had a big smile on his face. And so the interesting thing though is this chief master sergeant, he had seen me around and he said, you know, I, you do good work. You know, you seem like a pretty uh, sharp guy, but he said, you know, you need to understand 
if you're in the Air Force, uh, you know, you're going to have to follow the standards. And he said, look, I get it. I used to be young. I understand a lot of your friends are doing this. But, look, you, if you want to get out of the Air Force and grow your hair long, then do it. But while you're in the Air Force, you need to follow the standards. And so we were back in his pickup truck, and we were on the way back. Really nice guy. And he decided to stop by the base park. And we just had a long talk about, you know, he asked me, what are your plans? What do you, you know, what do you want to do? You know, are you in college? Why are you wasting your time? I mean, you, you know, you're in the Air Force. And whether you decide to stay in and make it a career or not, you know, you should be, you know, you should be improving yourself. And you've got a family. And, and you need to take this serious. He said, are you taking college courses? I said, no. And he said, why not? And I didn't have a good answer. So he, we, he took me to the base education office. I signed up for college courses on the spot. He took me back to work, never said a word to my boss, and became a mentor of mine ever since. So he got me on my way to completing my college degree and getting a commission in the Air Force. And, and obviously we don't have the time, but I've got mentors like that uh, that we could talk for a week about because it, throughout my life and my career, folks have stepped in uh, at strategic times and said, you know, why are you doing this or why don't you do that? And they were very, very helpful for me. Again, they looked at me and they said, this is not a bad person, but he's young and immature. I'm, I'm going to take this person under my wing. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how valuable that was to me. And by the way, I make it a point now as a result of that to mentor as many young folks as I can today because I know firsthand how important it is to have folks who will tell you what you need to know versus what you necessarily, you know, think you want to hear. And I think that's really the lesson there is you have to be receptive to it. Somebody Correct. has to be willing to give it the, the straight story to you. And in a way that this uh, chief master sergeant did, he paid for the haircut. He didn't humiliate you. He Correct. took the, he took an interest in you. He had a long talk with you, and and then followed through by saying, "We're going right now, and you're going to sign up for college courses." And then didn't go back and ratch out, if you will, to your boss. I mean, right. it, it's there's a way to be a great mentor, and and the book has um, some phenomenal stories of people who've touched your life like that. And we're talking to uh, General Larry uh, Spencer. Uh, his book is Dark Horse. His journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon. Um, uh, General uh, Spencer is at, at the time was one of only nine African Americans promoted to four stars. He, he ultimately became the Air Force's 37th Vice Chief of Staff. And as I said, the, that early those early years are what I think have a lot of uh, really good lessons for us. But I also want to ask you to talk a little bit because I think this becomes a again one of those pivotal points. You you, you get your college in, you get you, you get com- commissioned, you go to officer training school, but but along the line you changed your MOS from administration to financial management, and I think a lot of people don't you know they don't know of all the uh, career opportunities in the military and they may have an understanding of administration but no understanding of what financial management is in an organization like this and it really is where you made your bones um uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that uh, career change and and its impact sure yeah i was uh, in, in, again i i i entered the air force in administration they don't it's called communications now. It's a little bit fancier title, but 
uh, it was essentially uh, administrative, so, you know, typing, uh, postal. I, in fact, I worked in the post office when I was in Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, it, it, before a computer, you know, <laughs> I'm telling my age now, but when I joined the Air Force, there were no computers. Uh, and on my desk was a Royale typewriter. And, and most, many of your listeners <laughs> probably never seen a typewriter. Uh, so, you know, that, it, it, there was a large administrative MOS, if you will, to manage all the administrative filing and all that sort of thing. Um, but at, you know, at some point, you know, to be honest with you, that that wasn't very exciting. Uh, and and as I started to uh, take college courses, started to branch out, uh, started to uh, my self esteem started to improve. Uh, I really got fascinated with study. I learned how to study. I realized for the first time that you know my poor grades in school. Uh, weren't as a result of my intelligence or lack thereof. It was just an, a result of one confidence and two not knowing how to study and, and, and how to and, and how to you know how to do homework and how to how to figure out problems. So once I did that, I loved school uh, and it, it got me to branch out. And a, a friend of mine uh, who was in the comptroller or financial management unit on the base invited me over to kind of look around, and I said, "Man, I, I, this looks great." Um, you know, and, 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 and the comptroller or the financial management career field uh, consists of several opportunities. One is the traditional accounting and finance, you know, where you pay people and you process vouchers. But there was also budget, you know, which you actually developed a budget for the base and executed that. And then there was something back then called cost analysis, where you actually did time motion studies and you, and you really focused on how to best save money and to make the base more efficient. So I sort of fell in love with that, and, and I, you know, I, you know. By the way, anyone who reads the book, this will come through loud and clear. You know, I like to call myself very uh, frugal and uh, very cost efficient. If you ask my wife, she'll just tell you that I'm really cheap, uh, which, which, which is probably true as well. Uh, but that combination of you know my love for and passion for efficiency and saving money, it was just a natural marriage for me, and so. I was really happy to be commissioned in that career field, and, and you, as you said, uh, kind of where I made my bones and my and my reputation. Yeah, and it really allowed this uh, incredible uh, path up to four-star general uh, with uh, all, all kinds of opportunities along the way that nobody would ever thought this uh, low self, self-esteem, overweight uh black kid from uh, inner city Washington would ever have had the opportunity for. And I think that's why um, your story is so inspirational is it, it gives us all hope we can move beyond maybe the place we, we see ourselves in. No, I I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, again, you know, you know, (laughs) without getting into politics here, I, I think regardless of your political leanings, I think most people would agree that our country is really divided right now. Um, and, and I think in a, in the time that we're in right now, I think we need more sort of inspirational, uh, you know, uh, uh, examples to make us all step back and say, look, regardless of the differences we have, you know, we're still, we're still in the greatest country on earth and we, we can't let that, that get away from us. Um, and, and, and that if in this country, if you want to succeed, you can. Now, does it mean hard work? Absolutely. Uh, for most of us, uh, not most of many of us or most of us are not born into a lot of wealth. Most of us have to do it the old fashioned way. But in this country, can you do it? Absolutely. And, I, and sometimes I worry that we're so busy fighting each other 
that we, we forget to step back and say, you know what? Uh, the, the reason we are able to fight each other is because we are in the greatest country on the planet, and that allows us the freedoms to say and speak our minds and to disagree uh, as we see please. So I hope this, my book will also sort of get people to sort of step back and say, yes, uh, you know, I, my situation may not be the best, uh, but that's okay. I can I can achieve my goals uh, in spite of that. Well, and the arc, Larry, is even more dramatic when you think back. Okay, this, the Spencers have, have moved from the tobacco farm to the Pentagon. Right. In, in two generations. I mean, Correct. only in this country could you have pulled that off. Now, yeah, it wasn't easy. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot, lot of impediments, but it can be done, and you've, you did it. So, again, I, I really recommend the book Dark Horse, uh, General Larry O. Spencer, United States Air Force retired to folks. This was um, put out by the uh, United States uh, uh, Naval Institute Press. Um, you can find it at www.usni.org. It's also available in an ebook fashion. And, and uh, general, I suspect I can buy this on uh, all of my regular uh, uh, e-commerce outlets as well. That that is correct. It's out there. Yeah, you whatever your favorite uh, outlet is for purchasing books, uh, it's out there. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, discussion with General Larry O. Spencer. Four-star, um, very interesting hearing about his low self-esteem and poor academics growing up, his father's story, Larry's time on the tobacco farm, and how all of that blended in to make ultimately the man who would rise to a four-star position in the United States Air Force. Now, we're going to have a few words from our sponsors, and then we're going to hear about what uh, General Spencer is doing today. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We also want to thank our VSO sponsors. We're fortunate to have their support year in, year out. The Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter 310, Ann Arbor, Michigan. The Graf O'Hara VFW Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion uh, Press Corn Post 46 in Ann Arbor. So we appreciate all their ongoing support. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We're going to finish up the hour going back to General Spencer, but now with a different hat on, we're going to hear about what he's doing today. And a lot of times we get to talk to folks and... We get to talk about what they did in their military career, but maybe we don't get to explore what, they, what they're doing currently. So we have a great opportunity here. Um, General Spencer is uh, leading Armed Forces Benefit Association, AFBA. Uh, I wasn't all that aware of it till we talked. It provides life insurance, health plans, life planning to uh, its members, and it's a very... Um, uh, member-orientated uh, 
business arrangement. It was established in 1947, so it's been around forever. It just doesn't advertise as much as some of its competitors. So I think you'll find this uh, discussion of interest. To also talk about uh, with you, uh, General Spencer, um, what you're currently doing for the Armed Forces Benefit uh, Association, you are the president of AFBA, and uh, we haven't ever talked to anybody from there, and I'd like to know a little bit more about what the Armed Forces Benefit Association uh, is and does. Sure. Yeah, it's fascinating, and and, uh, I'm, I'm really proud to be here. Um, so if you uh, just take you back for a second, um, back during World War II, uh, folks were dying, military members were dying in war. Uh, but what a lot of folks aren't aware is that uh, in a lot of cases, uh, particularly back then, life insurance policies would not pay off uh, if you were killed in war. It was called a war clause. Uh, and so the Armed Forces Benefit Association was created as a benefit organization uh, assisted by then General Eisenhower, uh, and the first office, initial office, was actually in the basement of the Pentagon. And their primary purpose back then was to offer the benefit of uh, low-cost term life insurance for military members with no war clause, And, and that eventually got expanded to no terrorism clause as well. And so over the years, uh, AFBA has grown to offer the benefit of life insurance along, uh, local, uh, term life insurance along with other benefits as well, uh, to our members. Uh, and it's grown to, you know, uh, over 500,000 members. Uh, and so it's a really great organization and it has expanded, uh, to not only military, but those that are, are uh, first responders as well. And so our mission is to support those that support the nation. And so, and we're a nonprofit, so that's, that really helps us to uh, keep our costs down um, to, to members. So, yeah, it's a great organization. I appreciate being here because I feel still, I, I still get the, the satisfaction of serving our nation, uh, serving those that serve our, our, this great country. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it is a great organization. Uh, the benefits that we provide are really great, uh, and so yeah, I would I would encourage anyone to check it out uh, if they are interested in uh, the benefits that AFBA provides. Yeah, and I would uh, as well because I was surprised. I mean, now it's also insurance project, health plans, life planning. Can you talk about the different uh, categories of products that are available by AFBA? Sure. Anyone can go out on our, our, our webpage, uh, afba.com or .org, I'm sorry. Uh, and as you mentioned one as an example, we have a very impressive um, financial planning guide that, uh, it, that's free. You can download it for free uh, that actually takes you through, uh, you know, everything from, you know, managing a checkbook to estate planning uh, to life insurance. And, and, and so we provide that as a benefit, for example, to, to – Anyone who, who, who wants to use it, um, you know, we have benefits that range from, um, you know, if, if, if you want to, uh, uh, get, you know, get a discount on rental cars or, uh, you know, other areas such as that, uh, as a mem- being a member of AFBA allows you uh, those type of benefits. But obviously our primary benefit is the benefit of, of low-cost term life insurance, again, that, uh, that I think most members – uh, of the military and guard reserve and those that are uh, first responders uh, would would really benefit. I think would really benefit them taking a look at it. 
Well, the other part, one of the other benefits or programs available that I thought was particularly unique, uh, and we're talking to General uh, Larry Spencer, who's the president of AFBA, was uh, you you offer a TRICARE supplement plan, and that's not something you're normally going to see when talking to an insurance company or a benefits company. So, you know, that's really unique to to folks uh, and something that they may need and not realize is even out there. No, exactly. And I'll be honest with you, again, I'm, you know, I, I not long ago uh, turned 65, and I was shocked. I'd be, I should have known this. I didn't know this, but... Once you turn 65, whether you like it or not, you have to go on Medicare, uh, which means, you know, you, you don't stroll into a base or, or, or an installation hospital uh, with your ID card anymore. It uh, doesn't mean you can't, can't get an appointment, but you go in with your Medicare card. Uh, but, but the difference is uh, because Medicare, in a lot of most cases, doesn't cover 100% of your, med- your medical requirements the TRICARE that you use your entire career, um, now it becomes what they call a gap insurance, or in other words, covers the difference between what Medicare provides or other uh, health insurance. So, for example, those that have health insurance with their with a company they work for, um, tri- the, the TRICARE uh, gap insurance, if I can use that term, Picks up the expense of what the primary medic- medical care doesn't cover. Yeah, this is uh, all. So, yeah, this is all pretty confusing stuff. Yeah. And, and unless you're talking to somebody who understands the military background and lingo, because uh, uh, we've done, we've done this with some hospitals and uh, whatnot, they go Tricare. What What are you talking about? Right. I mean, you got to have uh, somebody who's got your back on this insurance stuff who understands these programs. And as I say, I was really surprised to, uh, when checking out uh, AFBA.com and the products, uh, seeing this TRICARE supplement plan and said, boy, there are folks who this is right up their alley. They don't, they probably don't even know they, this, this opportunity exists. So um, really, really interesting uh, product line there in the healthcare plans. Yeah, and by the way, I was uh, we, uh, National Life Insurance Day was back in September, so I did a little research for that. I was surprised to find out that 50% of Americans don't have adequate life insurance, 50%. Um, and so that's, that's a real problem. So you're right. You know, one of the things that, uh, uh, that troubled me, I guess, during my military time was the expectations we have on young folks coming to the military. I mean, folks graduate high school one day, they're in the military the next, and we expect them to understand you know, how to manage a checkbook. We, under, we expect them to understand, you know, life insurance. We expect them to understand all these things that no one has taught them. Right, uh, and right. Particularly now that we have the blended retirement system with 401K, yeah, that, that's great, but who's going to teach them what that means and, and how, what they sh- how, how they should take advantage of it? So, uh, yeah, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're really proud of here at AFBA is, you know, we, we, we offer to sit down, you know, face-to-face with uh, – with members of our military or first responders and help walk them through. We're not trying to push anything on anyone. We're just trying to make sure they understand what they have and, and, and then off and show them what we have to see if it's something that might benefit them. Yeah, that's right. As a nonprofit, you don't have to push anything on them. You're Correct. not trying to turn that. You're trying to help them. And another pro- another product that you, you guys offer that I thought was, again, one of those things where, like, okay, people have to know about this is your long-term care program uh, to – 
unfortunately, many people will need long-term care uh, insurance or coverage, and I think they don't understand it, and it, it can be pretty confusing. So it was nice to see that that's also something that AFBA offers. Yeah, and that, that one hits home because, you know, my father passed away, uh, and, and my mother got to a point where she had to go into a assistant living facility. Uh, my brothers and sisters, we would say, yeah, that we're all for it, but then we went and looked at the cost of that and said, my goodness, how are we going to pay for this? Uh, we, you know, we hadn't thought about long-term health care uh, for, for my mother. We certainly hadn't thought about it for us, um, but it's something that we all need to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, General, I appreciate you spending some time again today with Veterans Radio, not only to talk about your uh, unusual life journey, and uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about all the successes, but we got a lot of life lessons out, and then also time to talk about AFBA and what's available, and I encourage folks to not only check out the book Dark Horse, but also check out what he's doing now at AFBA.com. So, General, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, and uh, my website is GeneralLarrySpencer.com if someone wants to uh, check out what I'm up to and uh, follow what I'm doing. So I I really appreciate your time, and I so much appreciate what you're doing uh, for our veterans. So thank you so much. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light What so proudly we hail At the twilight's last gleaming Whose broad stripes and bright stars Through the perilous fight O'er the ramparts we watched Were so gallantly streaming And the rocket's red glare The bombs bursting in air Gave proof through the night That our flag was still there Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave O'er the land of the free And the home of the brave Every time I hear our national anthem, I think of our military. Those who are standing guard for us all around the world so that we can go to church or we can go to a sporting event, we can assemble peacefully, we can vote. I don't think about them in terms of what their race or national origin is. And I hope as you listen to General Spencer today, you actually forgot that he was an African American and you just were admiring what he has accomplished as an American. And really our Star Spangled Banner is for all Americans and sometimes I don't know how we do it, but we tend to forget that. If you want some other inspiring stories that we've done over time with our African-American veterans, let me recommend you go to veteransradio.net. Go to our uh, blog talk, which is where our podcasts are and our archives. And and you're going to find interviews with 
incredible men and women who have served. Uh, folks like Colonel Cliff Worthy, who we interviewed and went to West Point back in the 1940s, a really different time. Or somebody like Sid Taylor, who was a Marine grunt in Vietnam and went on to become an extremely successful businessman in the automotive uh, supply market. Or somebody like Erica Robertson, who joined up uh, into the Navy to get out of a bad situation, went on to get her MBA, worked for Nike in Europe, and is now an education crusader and tackling generational trauma. We have talked to incredible African-American veterans, and I think as you hear their stories and hear their lessons, again, what fades away is what their race or ethnicity or uh, religious preference is. And they really have stories to tell that are American stories, things that could only happen here in the United States. I really felt that way with General Spencer. Only in this country would he be able to have that upward mobility, and I think that's true for all of us. We have talks with uh, folks like Reuben Green, Lieutenant Commander Reuben Green, who talks about uh, the racism that had to be faced. And we can't whitewash this. It didn't. It's not gone away. It still exists, but it doesn't control us. It doesn't control the nation. It doesn't control our African-American citizens, and it shouldn't control the military. So we have ways in which to overcome these problems. We just have to focus on that it can be done. We recently did an interview about the uh, 6888 Postal Battalion of African-American officers, women uh, in World War II who had to solve the mail problem that existed uh, around D-Day, and an incredible story uh, where we uh, recounted that. Uh, again, these are we can tend to let these kind of slip away into history, but I think we do ourselves and the, the country a disservice by that. Uh, we we need to recognize these triumphs uh, by individuals, by communities, and it's not just the African American community. Geez, we've had these kind of programs with uh, Chinese American, Japanese Americans who have fought and faced uh, their own challenges, Hispanics. Uh, as well. So I think that's really the what we're about, right? America's this uh, overused phrase, uh, but it's the melting pot, right, where we all come together and realize that when you hear that Star Spangled Banner, it means something. You should stand at attention and reflect really on how fortunate we are in this country. And I think at times we fail to do that. Uh, we focus on differences rather than what we have together. And and I think we'd be a better country if we spent a little more time on that and if our leaders spent a little more time on that. Um, we don't like to get too preachy or political on Veterans Radio. We like to let the stories stand for themselves. But I think these stories... Uh, just need a little little more emphasis, a little more push, and so we're glad we're able to bring that to you here on uh, Veterans Radio. You can always find more about Veterans Radio on Facebook, our Facebook site, or at our website, uh, veteransradio.net. We have an archive there of all our programs, uh, having been on the air now about 18 years. It's a, it's a pretty big uh, catalog of folks we've had the opportunity to talk to. And Dale Throneberry has 
the founder of this and still active voice, uh, has done a tremendous job and uh, keeps this thing going with the help of our sponsors, which we really appreciate, nvbdc.org, our VSO sponsors, legalhelpforveterans.com. And it's because of those folks that we can continue to do this on uh, AM radio stations and FM radio stations across the country. We're looking forward to a great 2022 where we get to expand operations, and uh, that'll be exciting as we reach out to more folks. If you have programming idea, always feel free to send it to Dale at VeteransRadio.net or Jim at VeteransRadio.net. Uh, I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and uh, this is our side gig where we get to give back, and we really appreciate the opportunity that Veterans Radio has for us doing that. So next week, Dale will be back. It'll be an ex- another exciting uh, set of stories. And until next time, you are dismissed. <laughs>